to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who envisions the Twin Cities just surrounded by urban farms. I mean, really, urban farms, food, kids picking berries, um, greens all available, these healthy, nutritious, vital area with a ton of pollinators and healthy soil. And, um, and, and I mean... Uh-huh. <laughs> Wouldn't that be beautiful and awesome? And on today's show, we're going to be talking about people really struggling to make that vision come to a reality. Um, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about the East Phillips Urban Farm. And joining us will be former representative Karen Clark, Cassandra Holmes with East Phillips Neighborhood Institute. And joining us now is Joe Battelle. He is the chair of the Minnesota DFL's Native Peoples Caucus. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Joe. Hi, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're happy to have you. So um, tell us a little bit about um, what is this, uh, the concept of the East Phillips Urban Farm? Yeah, so um, it's relatively uh, similar to what the name is. It is a community plan, uh, urban farm in the heart of East Phillips. Uh, essentially, what the urban farm would be is a seven-acre uh, construction that is known as the roof depot that would be repurposed to become a urban farm, uh, you know, 10, 10 to 20 units would be uh, dedicated to affordable housing um, because of a houselessness issue in the area. You know, there's there was plans for aquaponics being incorporated into the building structure. Um, on top of it, a solar array to power everything, um, as well as having space for commercial purposes and also space for, uh, you know, educational classroom settings for uh, community members to, you know, uh, go into languages, uh, you know, for ESL learners and uh, for community members to also learn, you know, Amharic, uh, Spanish and whatnot. And yeah, again, this was a plan that was um, conceived in community and this is what they came up with. And now this building um, is... 230,000 square feet, the reef, Roof Depot building. So tell us a little bit about the building that is existing right now. Yeah, so it's uh, relatively all steel, um, which means it's extremely sturdy, resilient. And, you know, the phrase is they don't build them like they used to mm-hmm. um, because this thing can really wither uh, some changes. Uh, and... Sadly, the city's current or yeah current plan is to demolish this um, when there is this amazing plan to reconfigure it into an urban farm to you know feed the community and to build um, entrepreneurship in the area. And again, um, all those things I listed uh, before, um, those are some of the plans that we had in place, um, but with flexibility because like you said there, it is a lot of square feet um, for the possibility for so much more I mean there's so much I want to say right now and I'm, I'm going to jump a little bit because that's what I do I mean I know the Mall of America right now is actually facing some financial issues and if the Mall of America did not spend all that money remodeling itself and kept a really beautiful little waterfall that went through it and I'm not waterfall but the little water on the ground and the nice larger trees and they kept it they didn't spend all that money remodeling they probably would not be facing the problem they have right now and so this idea of knocking down this sustainable building to to keep building 
doing when we're facing so many issues, the issues of sustainability and people with houses and the potential of repurposing a, a building like this is just very exciting. And so um, and later in the program, we're going to be talking um, with the, the person involved in the lawsuit. We're also going to be talking with Karen Clark. And I should let everyone know that I did reach out to the city of Minneapolis and they did not want to have anyone come on the show at this time. But now tell me a little bit about your personal connection. Uh, why did you get in, why did you get involved in the East Phillips urban farm um, vision? Yeah, so I was uh, raised in Little Earth, uh, and you know, also in East Phillips for half my life. So I have a connection um, not only locally but also at a communal level as well. Such as you know, I am half Mexican, so you know, there's the the Latinx component to that as well. Um, and I want to rephrase or go deeper into what you just said about like what is happening now when in fact, you know, the economic depravity, the environmental injustice is not something new in the, um, in the community. It's something that's been ongoing for, you know, for almost a hundred years. You can go as far back as when the Smith foundry moved into the area in 1923. And then fast forward 10 years later with Heartland, um, polluted the area with its arsenic uh, for, you know, almost 30 years. Um, and then also talking about the Hiawatha expansion, or not expansion, but the Hiawatha reconstruction project in 1994. Um, all of these things exploited or extracted resources out of the area with the exploitation of, you know, focusing environmental injustice in a specific area, you know, um, so these things, these issues that we're talking all over the city in Richfield with the Mall of America, that's something that's been going on in East Phillips for a very long time. And that's where you get the asthma rates, um, where we have the highest asthma rates in that community today. Native Americans, Little Earth residents, you know, I can count six people since the pandemic who have died from, you know, health complications. But that's just a normal thing. That's not including COVID. So, you know, with that, you know, with that connection, with those facts, how can you not be a part of this project? How can you not support this project? You know, I might be a community member. I might have been raised in the area, but these are the facts. We have been hit hard for a very long time, and we have a project that is in place that can help reverse these facts to bring us into balance, but we're hitting some roadblocks. Yeah, and the, the issues of environmental. Talk, talk more about the problems of pollution in this area and the environmental justice issues around this yeah, area. Yeah, so yeah, certainly. Um, so I touched relatively on the asthma rates in the area, um, them being the highest, with us kind of being in competition with North Minneapolis, um, but we're right there next to a highway. Um, so it, the data flips, you know, in the oppression Olympics in that area. But, you know, I mentioned that Smith Foundry came into the area in 1923. Um, that's a pollutant. Um, the Heartland Partners produced um, and stored arsenic in the area from 1938 till 1963. You know, and, and then um, the arsenic got, in, got into the soil and contaminated it. Um, we also have to rep- I also have to acknowledge that, you know, the people in this area suffer from some of the highest um, cases of, like, lead poisoning as well. Um and again, highway reconstruction in 1994, we are focusing a lot of environmental stressors for the sake of progress, 
at, at least that's what the city will say. At least that's what the state will say. They will justify, you know, a a company polluting the area because it's economic progress, right? They're bringing jobs into the area, but people are suffering. Um, we're getting a new highway, right? More lanes, but that means more cars for some people. And East Phillips is not only like with these asthma rates that I referenced, but it's also the most diverse community in the state of Minnesota per capita. And coincidentally, it's also the poorest. So when you re- when you connect these two things, it being very diverse and very poor, and it's being subjugated to such poor economic conditions, what do you call that? Well, you call it for what it is, environmental racism. And the stage has been set for so long that it's kind of something expected from the city, okayed by the state. You know, it's been sanctioned for so long. And this is where ethne, you know, in in relation to, you know, in collaboration and solidarity with community members from the East African community, Little Earth and the Latin our Latinx relatives, you know, came with an idea of no. Enough is enough. The future is green. I and love that. the most awesome part is the community came up with this plan. Yeah, and so um what do you think the East Phillips Urban Farm could mean for the neighborhood? Justice. You know, like I said, since 1923, the community members in this area have been subjugated to such poor economic conditions. You know, they finally get something that is theirs. This this project will be cooperatively cooperatively owned. You know, there's that joke of like, think about it as like the Green Bay Green Bay Packers, but for East Phillips, mm-hmm. right? And you know, the very plan of this is to bring jobs into the area and also to bring down pollution levels. And, you know, there's solid research about the connection between gardening and mental health. And do you think that, um, you know, just being around living plants, I mean, it, it improves well-being, it may reduce crime, and it increases community coherence. Do you think it has that potential? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I just put a snake plant on my desk and I feel happier, but <laughs> we have to consider the communities that are involved. You know, we have indigenous communities, we have East African communities, you know, we have Latinx communities who have connections, um, close connections to, you know, being self-sustaining farmers from where they come from. And it's bringing this culture into this area to be more reflective of the communities that it represents. And the access to food is so important. I mean, we've kind of learned that too with the COVID um, threat. Um, you know, there were some there were some disruptions to the food system, and having food produced locally by local entrepreneurs. I mean, again, it's such a beautiful vision. Absolutely, and when the food is you know culturally relevant, because you know food shelves they often give foods that are not. You know, they're born. There's pastas. Um, you know. What's that mean to a Latinx relative who is um, down at their moment? You know, yeah. you know, it's, it's different from their dietary um, um, customs. And with that, you know, yeah, it's great to have food and grow, but it's even more so when it's culturally relevant and connected to your origin stories, such as like maize or beans with uh, Latinx relatives or, you know, the walleye with aquaponics with our indigenous relatives, specifically the Ojibwe. Yeah, and the diabetes rates are so high, especially in some uh, in some communities. And a lot of that re- reason is because the food system, um, because of the foods that are available, the industrial foods aren't really um, healthy and vital. 
they're not feeding our souls. They're 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 um, they're just not good for people. A lot of them. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, coming from you know, and I can only speak on like my experiences. You know, being an indigenous person, uh, growing up poor. You know, growing off growing up from commodities. You know, commodity foods given by the government. Um, it's all high fat, high saturations, you know, highly processed and it, you know, it's cheese and milk where, you know, those were, again, these are foods introduced to people during, you know, colonization, mm-hmm. you know, let's just call it out for what it is, colonization. And mm-hmm. again, what does that mean to the community? It means reclaiming food sovereignty. And as you've mentioned, during this time, we've seen how important that needs to be going forward because as we become more globalized, these things can happen. And poor people are the ones to suffer first. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, and, and we all suffer. The earth suffers when we're separate from, from the food sources. And, and having that, like you said, even your spider plant can make you happy. I mean, this idea of, of um, even the, the affordable houses, uh, one of the visions is that every house comes with a garden. Right? Absolutely. And it goes, yeah. And again, that is, that was community thought when the project was being, was in its inception because you know, how our house's relatives are still our neighbors and they deserve, you know, equitable living. It's not just give them a tiny home. It's right. give them a beautiful living space because they are, at the end of the day, human beings worthy of, you know, a nice place to put their head down at night. Right. If they choose it. We're all, we all come into this world worthy. We're all worthy from birth to death and everything in between. We're all worthy. We don't have to worry about that. So, Joe, Joe Bytel, is there anything else you'd like to say before we leave? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, follow us on Facebook at the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute. Um, donate to us. Uh, you'll learn more about the lawsuit uh, going forward. Uh, you know, help us out in that realm. Help us out with community outreach. That's where the money is going. Um, you know, support a BIPOC coalition. Um, let's retake our city one farm at a time, everybody. Yeah, sounds beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Um, we're going to take a break and we'll come back. We'll be talking with uh, Karen Clark. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. A student of permaculture, a person who's not, who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who envisions the Twin Cities just surrounded by urban farms. And today we're talking about the East Phillips Urban Farm. And joining us right now is Cassie Holmes. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. AM. Welcome to Food well, Freedom Radio, you. Cassie. And I know you're <laughs> having you. a very busy day today. You're actually working on the vaccines, uh, giving people, um, vaccinating people for COVID. Um, well, I myself am not doing that, but I am helping getting people scheduled and helping, um, you know, helping out the clinic and getting everyone in and where to go and stuff like that. Well, it's exciting to finally see that come through. I hope it really, um, you know, I hope I, I'd love to go back to safe and healthy communities. And um, right. 
And and that's what this um, East Side Eats Phillips Urban Farm is also about, is how do we have safe and um, healthy communities? Yes, definitely. So tell us a little bit about your involvement um, with the East Phillips um, Urban Farm. Well, well, my involvement is I am a Little Earth resident, which is like right in the um, East Phillips neighborhood. Um, I... I live right next to something called the Roof Depot site, and my involvement really started when um, I found out what was going to be happening there and how it would affect my community. And the reason why that concerned me so much is because I've seen so many of the community members in Little Earth and in our surrounding community um, just really affected by the pollution in our community with um, high rates of asthma, where you know diabetes, food insecurity, and um, heart conditions. Um, my own son, my eldest son, um, had lost his life to a heart condition that we never knew he had until he was 14 years old, and um, he passed away at the age of 16 from a heart condition. Wow. I'm sorry yep. about that. Thank you. And I also had a friend that grew up with me there on um, in Little Earth, and her her 21-year-old um, daughter, Healthy, just had a baby, um, got sick, and she passed away from a heart condition and just undetected. And so I start seeing, like, I kind of start seeing, like, looking around, opening my eyes more and seeing, like, wow, all these young adults and young children are, like, just passing away from asthma attacks, undetected heart conditions. And I was like, there's something going on here. There's something going on, and it's just absolutely scary, and I don't want anyone else to have to suffer the pain that we suffered. Yeah, because this, so, this area of Minneapolis has some of the highest asthma rates in the state. Yes, very. And we have, um, I think we are considered one of the the places in the county with some of the highest rates, along with a section in Northside. But we like we have this flip chart, you know, that Karen Clark, our former state representative, had um, gotten put together. And so you you have the county and you have like the East Phillips neighborhood and a part of Northside. And we just flip this chart of, of facts that were given to us by, you know, the Minnesota Department of Transportation, you know, the Minnesota Health Department and all this information on on um, asthma, um, pollution from traffic, high traffic. I mean, you just keep pulling these things over you know, these, um, like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just like you flip a page and that will put these dots and um, show on the county where it's all being affected. And mm-hmm. then the biggest, like I said, the biggest affected area was the East Phillips area in a, in a section of Northside. Right. Now, so tell us about the lawsuit you have with the city. Yep. So the lawsuit is um, basically we are fighting to survive, fighting to live. Um, we we want the right to clean air and clean water without having to choose between the two. Because believe it or not, I was actually asked when I was in a city council um, meeting that they're having downtown that I was like, you guys, you know, you got to read the fine print of what you're signing on here when it comes to the Roof Depot site and public works because nothing is going to change you know, it's just going to create more pollution. And I was literally asked, well, do you want clean air or clean water? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, why do I have to decide that? Why is that a choice? And 
that what you're asking me don't even make sense because the plan is not going to change our water at all. It's not going to get better. It's nothing is going to change, but it will make a big difference in our air pollution. It will hurt us even more than we're already being hurt. So we have decided because they, um, uh, the city public works had told us, you know, all we asked them was really think about what you're going to do in this community. Think about your footprint. Um, you know, if you don't think it's going to be that big of a deal, then we want you to do a health impact assessment, you know, about how this will impact us. And they just refused to do it. And then we're like, you know what, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this because we want to live and we want our future children to live and we want the generations to continue in this area. We're proud of our area. And if you're not going to do it, we're going to sue you. You know, we're going to fight. Mm-hmm. And they came back and said, okay, we're going to do a health impact assessment, but the city is going to do it. And we're like, that's not acceptable because you're not going to get to assess your own project. So we're fighting. We're I'm fighting ready. for our right to live. So, um, so again, uh, tell us a little bit so people understand this area, the roof depot, what the city wants to do. And I should let everyone know I didn't uh, reach out to the city and they didn't have anyone available to be interviewed on this topic. But this is a seven-acre site. And what the city wants to do is knock down the current building there and use this site to store all of their snow plows and all their public works equipment. Do I have that about yep. correct? A little bit. There's a little bit more stuff going on. So um, you have a lot, you do have a lot of really important information. But what is missing is that that um, area, it's, they actually have a, another like about a seven acre of that area. And then there's another, the seven acre that's attached to it, a little around seven acre here, give or take a little. Um, and what they had planned to do was, like you said, knock that down, build storage and all that and that and all that air, um is uh, situated on a place called the, um, oh, my God, I'm sorry. No, no, that's um, fine. The Arsenic Triangle, basically. That that was like, it had a lot of arsenic in it. It was a super fun site and a recently fun site. So um, if they knock that down, all the arsenic that that um, building is like holding in or, you know, holding down will all be in the dust, will be in the air that we're breathing and will hurt us. And what they plan on building is not only a place to store trucks, you know, manhole covers, um, ass, they want to um, do asphalt and uh, salt um, mixture there. Um, and also they wanted to build a three-story parking ramp to bring in their staff, even though they tell us these jobs that they're going to build are for the community. So I don't know why they would need this, this, this parking ramp that would hold about three to 400 cars. And then they also wanted to build something called the sandbox lot. And what that would do is it's um, indoors. It would train employees on how to work equipment that is um, ran on diesel. And I was just like, you know, that's super scary. How can you do that? And they're like, oh, no, no, you don't worry about that. The, you know, be filtered out. And I'm like, okay, so you're going to filter out equipment that's being ran inside all the diesel and the pollution, you're filtering it out, and I shouldn't worry about it, but it's filtering out into my community. And then it means more and, truck traffic to your community. And, um, yep. And, and, and we already have over um, 100,000 um, 100, trucks or, you know, um, traffic daily in the East Phillips neighborhood. 
Yeah. Yeah. So tell us now, again, the vision, um, that, that the community vision of creating the East Phillips uh, Urban Farm. Yeah. So I would like to tell you um, the vision would be to help our community um, grow their own food, you know, um, to get an education and, you know, green jobs and um, just really build themselves up and learn how to um, survive, I guess, you know, survive and be healthy doing it and 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 have a job that, you know, it's like a second chance job. You know, you don't have to wear a suit and you don't have to come in, but you can work with your hands. You can, you know, learn how to grow food. And I've seen with my own eyes just how successful that can be because um, through Karen Clark, she had got us like a $319,000 grant with um, EPNI, with the East mm-hmm. Phillips, uh, you know, the um, Neighborhood Institute. And different people in our community, like organizations or, you know, groups of people got some of this money. And so Little Earth had gotten some money. And what we did was we had youth from ages like 5 to 17 apply for a job in our Little Earth Garden. And the reason why that's so important is because there was, we had kids that weren't going to school. They were skipped in school, whatever, and there was a meeting held about this with some of the community members and stuff. And they're like, hey, why aren't you going to school? What can we do to help? And, you know, some of the kids are like, well, you know, I don't got brand new shoes. I don't have brand new clothes. And, you know, I don't want to go there. And we're like, okay. So as the executive director, Jolene Jones at the time was coming out, a young man stopped her and said, you really need to listen to those kids because I was that kid. And I ended up selling drugs to make money so I can go to school with nice clothes. And now I have a charge on me. So you really need to listen to what they're saying. So the executive director said, okay, this is what we're going to do. So we got that money. We hired our youth. They came in. They asked for their own job application. They filled it out. They we they went through an interview, and they were hired on the spot. So when they start working in our garden, it was Monday through Friday, two hours a day. And we had a, a morning from 10 to 12 and an afternoon from 12 to 2. And so they would get, they, they had a check every week. And for the younger kids, that was put on hold. And we took them shopping. Community members in Little Earth took them shopping to go to get um, clothes for school and anything else they needed for school. And our older kids would get half of their check and save the other half for clothes for school. But what came out of that, it was real successful, but what came out of that was that we had kids, while they were waiting for, like, school buses or whatever, laying in the farm, picking food, talking about the food that they planted and how it, how to see how it had grown, and they were eating it. <laughs> and we had kids eating radishes, and they never would even touch a radish. Well, but the fact that they grew it and they took care of it and it was theirs, they, they loved it. Right, and there's so much evidence to this. Yeah, and kids don't eat fruits and vegetables. A, they're too expensive, which is crazy. But yeah. B, if you grow your fruits and vegetables, then you're more likely to eat them. And so, having fruits and vegetables widely available to kids—I mean, any kid around blueberry bushes or raspberry bushes—is just natural. It's in our soul, yeah. right? It's in our soul. It's in—it's in, it's in our it. heart. They love it, and it's so so good on so many levels. Again, pollinators and healthy soils and. Yep. And so this image of uh, – and, and later we're going to be talking to Claren Carr because it's actually a very practical image of creating urban farms and and yeah. so people can actually uh, grow their own food and uh, create their own economy. 
Well, and the ideal of that was, you know, for, the, you know, the kids that we were working with, that that would be a stepping stone into our our indoor urban farm vision, right? We would have the low-end, like, type of aquaponics and the high-end aquaponics and that they would, you know, you know, learn the basics and then get, you know, eventually grow into the other to the other sections of planting. You know what I mean? Right. So and there's we some... thought of it as jobs, security, food security. I mean, just everything that, I mean, anything that could possibly come with that, you know, all the good, all the good things. Right. And I know Spark Y in the Minneapolis area, they're doing a very successful program working with kids right now. Um, so how do you want support from the community? How can the community well, support you? Yep. So um, any, we have an EPNI, a EPNI, a Facebook, website, Twitter, like all the media sites. Um, and they could always go look on there. We have different forms and different ways that people can help us. Like um, we are asking for donations of, of money to help us with our legal fight um, because, you know, the city, they have unlimited tax dollar funds. You know, and that, that's one thing that really upsets me is that, like, I'm here, I'm fighting for my life, and they're using my own tax dollars against me. And I'm, you know, and I'm asking people, can you help me to fight against the city, you know? Um, but also asking people to reach out to their city council person and just saying, hey, you know, we really want to support the East Phillips Indoor Urban Farm. Right. Because the more, pe- yep, the more people who reach out to their city council you know, hopefully the city council will start, you know, seeing, you know, this is a good thing. This is what we need to do. Right. Um, and we're going to be taking a break um, shortly, but um, is there anything else you'd like to say? Just that um, I'm just thankful for, thankful that you guys took the time to um, have us on to talk about this. Thankful for anybody who listens and who reaches out and or just cares, you know, thank you and miigwech. Yeah, thank you, too. Thank you for all your work, because that's the other thing. There's, there is so much effort to try to create something like this. It's, it takes a lot, a lot of, a lot of passion and a lot of time. And so we really appreciate your time as well. Um, Cassie Holmes, thank you so much. Yep, thank you. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who envisions the Twin Cities surrounded by urban farms. And uh, today we're talking about the uh, prospects for an East Phillips urban farm. And joining us right now is Karen Clark, a former representative. Hey, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Karen. Thank you, Laura. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what is the East Phillips urban farm. Well, it's a... um community-based environmental justice project that um, neighbors in the East Phillips community decided to put together uh, because we wanted to stop adding to the toxic pollution that's in the neighborhood and create an asset that would help us be healthier and, uh, you know, have jobs and affordable housing, uh, you know, all the kind of things that um, a neighborhood should have. And it was started by... uh, the opportunity that came forward with a big old warehouse, 230,000 square feet, like 400 million square feet, um, that was vacated and the, the neighborhoods 
thought, oh my gosh, let's see if we can make that into something positive rather than let it become another one of the industrial polluters in our neighborhood in East Phillips, which is, you know, a low-income community with great racial diversity and um, struggling, though, with an existing burden of environmental toxic pollution. So it was going to be an indoor urban farm. It will be, I should say, an indoor urban farm. Um, that has all kinds of um, opportunities for the neighborhood to make itself better. We're going to be growing uh, fresh organic food. We're going to be having a cafe and possibly restaurant that youth will be running. There will be a number of cultural markets. Um, Little Earth of United Tribes is taking a major role in leading this whole project, um, and they want to have a place where they can sell some of the Native American products, crafts that they create, as well as the food that they will be helping to grow. Um, we have just an incredible connection with the community that's there. The, the um, Somali-American community wants to have a big part in the job training program that's going to be there. Uh, there's going to be uh, an opportunity for people of all cultures to you know, develop small businesses and so on. There's warehouse space. The, the Latinx community has been involved from the very beginning, too, and they really hope to... Um, do a couple of things. One is to do some farming um, and growing of good, you know, agricultural products that that community really knows a lot about already. But also some of the restaurants and businesses that were uh, lost or destroyed in the uprising after George Floyd's murder have approached us and said, hey, can we have some space in there? We need some warehouse space, uh, refrigeration space. Um, so it's going to be, you know, an urban farm, but it's going to have all these opportunities for entrepreneurial growth as well. And it's, uh, it's a struggle because we don't have that space yet. We're fighting right. with the city. You're fighting with it. the city. And so I know there's a long, complicated story here, but just briefly, um, this idea came up in 2014 and, and you yes. and a group of people were all ready to buy this 200, uh, this huge, huge building, 230, Two, 230,000 square feet building. Yeah. You were all ready to buy it. And then what happened? Well, the city threatened eminent domain. They, they came to us and said, oh, we forgot to tell you, but for years we've been actually planning to expand our existing public works um, building that's on the other end of that um, block, I guess you'd say. Is that actually more than a block, but it's other end of the area there, and uh, they said, we just want to expand our public works there, and we've been thinking about doing that, and we're going to come in there and knock down that building, and we're going to put up a bunch of small buildings to house our sewer pipes and water pipes, and our, we'll be parking our, our trucks that work for the public works department there. We're going to build a 200, no, excuse me, a 400-some uh, space parking ramp, and we're going to, you know, teach people how to drive and work with the diesel equipment there, and, you know, I mean, they had their ideas that they had not really shared with the neighborhood, which they're supposed to do ahead of time when you're doing development in a community that has an active community-based development uh, organization already there. They didn't tell us. Um, we had gone to the legislature and got $318,000 to do planning and architecture drawings and all that. We were in the process of doing all that. We had been talking with the owners who said they'd charge us about $5 million to get the the building and the space there and the city threatened eminent domain basically said to the owner work with us or we'll force you to sell to us and the owner stopped talking into the neighborhood of course and um, the city uh, paid an extra almost two million dollars to buy that building out from underneath us and so we've been fighting with them ever since to try to get 
even a portion of the building. You know, we we had about a 5.7 acre plan. We cut it down to three, which is major. But we thought, okay, we could still do our urban farm. We could still do some affordable housing. We could still do the job training. Um, but they said, nope, can't do that. <laughs> can't do two. You know, can't do one and a half. So I mean, it was just they. It was their way or no way. And you know, we had a couple of kind of I would say fake. Uh, citizen advisory group type thing set up to do, talk with them, and it just didn't work out. They really wanted to do what they wanted to do in our neighborhood. Yeah, there's so many issues with this, and um, the one thing that I find so fascinating, because I know um, how hard this must be to try to pull off a program like uh, this urban farm, but you had the funding lined up, and you still have funding lined up, right? I mean, it's well, possible. This is not just this is a viable product project. Yes, it is. We've been very realistic about what needs to happen. Um, and so recently we got a very uh, clear um, investor um, to work with us uh, who said uh, and then actually wrote a letter of intent and forwarded it to a city council member that's working with us and said, uh, we, and the, the name of the investor is called AgriFund, and they're an agricultural and housing developer nationally and internationally known. They said, we, we would like to um, buy that building. Okay, Karen, so tell us a little bit more about AgroFund. AgroFund is a uh, developer that uh, we uh, recruited to help us buy the building, and they are a agricultural and housing developer nationally and internationally uh, known, and they um, sent their um, lead person, a guy who's um, Delorme, his Nickname is Guy, so I'll just call him Guy. He came and spent, he spent about a month in Minneapolis, and some of that time he spent with us, talking with us about what our dreams were and how we plan to put together this urban farm in this space. And he just said, absolutely, we can do it. We'd love to do it, and we will, not only will we work with you, we'll make sure that you can continue your community-based um, vision for this. And so that's what we're working on right now. Uh, we got a letter of intent for them to buy it and forwarded that to the city council member we're working with. And, uh, you know, she's trying to get the votes on the city council for them to agree to let AgriFund buy the building. And then when, when that's completed, uh, the next step is that we um, will be raising funds to help, you know, renovate and create the space for the businesses that want to be in there particularly the big urban farm. That's the major part of it. There are so many so aspects. There's, can, yeah, there's so we many aspects. can do it. Yeah, that's so cool. And I also want to get through and just appreciate your pers- perseverance because you guys have been working on this for five years. And yes. one of the aspects that are so appealing to me is this idea of knocking down a perfectly good 200,000 plus square foot building when it could be repurposed to create jobs and create um, food for our area and create equity and justice and have affordable housing with gardens attached to it. I mean, you know, to repurpose that instead of knocking it down is it just makes so much sense. It does. You've got the vision exactly right. And we think that we can do that and make it affordable space. I mean, to build a brand new building would cost a lot more and it would not allow us to make it a place that the community can own and actually develop inside, you know, and around it. So that's our vision. We'll be going to the state legislature, to the county, and then, of course, back to the city. If they really do believe in the economic development and justice that they claim they do, they should be helping, too. 
So yeah. we'll be, ra- be raising probably another $7 million to to do the renovation and make the space affordable. Great. And now um, you, you also founded the Women's Environmental Institute, so you have a track record of success when it comes to um, <laughs> urban farming. Tell us just a little bit about that. We do. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I can help contribute to this project is bringing some of that expertise. And it's, you know, based on the fact that a community really knows what's best for itself and that the justice issues involved, especially the environmental justice, the racial disparities that occur in Phillips neighborhood, especially East Phillips neighborhood, because of the kind of toxic um, polluting industries that are already there. This is an effort to stop the city from polluting us more. And, you know, we have a state law that I and others helped pass. Senator Linda Berglund was a Senate author. We passed a law that gives this neighborhood particular protection against um, more toxic pollution. And the city just says, oh, well, we're not covered by that, or we don't think we're subject to that law. And we're just going, hey, yes, you are. So that's why we're in court. And, um, you know, I think we have a chance of winning that lawsuit and and uh, we've got a lot of uh, allies who understand, especially the racial justice issues involved in this. Great. It's time. It's time and the pollution <laughs> issues. And, and Cassie also talked to uh, just some of the heart, hearts to create a place for our hearts to bloom and how important it is for kids oh. to be exposed to urban food and urban gardening. And, um, you know, that's it's, it's such a beautiful vision for the future um, on so many levels. Um, so how can our listeners support you guys and, and find out more about um, East Phillips Urban Farm? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, um, they can do something really just right around the corner. We're having a rally um, on the 16th of January. That'll be either um, – it, it'll be virtual, that first one, and then there'll be a follow-up that'll either be at Little Earth or right, right on the street there by uh, the Roof Depot, probably Longfellow um, and 28th Street. So, so they can, you know, support us by listening, tuning into that information. They can go to the website for the urban farm and um, East Phillips urban farm, and we would love to have folks help us uh, convince and help persuade our city council members to uh, let the neighborhood buy this project, buy this land, so we can create our project, and uh, you know, they can have a voice. And our mayor needs to hear from people he has not been a supporter of this either so the city council the mayor we have some support on the city council we have um always have had some (laughs) um we have a county commissioner who's interested in working with us and we have state legislators who've signed letters saying come on let this go forward and i think you know since um the murder of george floyd there's a lot more understanding of why um environmental justice uh, and racial health disparities are really important for minneapolis to pay attention to so. And um, so what do you think that the East, Firm, East Phillips Urban Farm, what do you think that would mean to the neighborhood? We're down our last oh. minute, so we're going to have to say goodbye. But what do you think it would yeah. mean? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think, as, as you said, Cassie said, it really is a blooming of a dream. It's jobs. It's, it, it really is allowing a neighborhood to have some self-determination and, and you know, have an actual um, positive asset that is community-based, that comes from the hearts and minds of the people who live there. Yeah, and then the the website to get more information is eastphillipsneighborhoodinstitute.org. Um, so much appreciate yes. your time, Karen Clark, former state representative. Also appreciate Joe Bytel with the uh, Minnesota DFL Native People's Caucus. And um, 
Also, um, Cassie Holmes, um, uh, for joining us. Um, thank you for listening. And, you know, let's, let's, let's see this. I mean, I can see this East, East Phillips neighborhood urban farm. Um, local jobs, local food, pollinators, kids with vegetables. And, uh, yes, we can still have clean water and still do the public works is also important. Um, but repurposing this 203rd building, repurpose it. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950.